Humanity is growing and connecting. Tomorrow's world needs more energy from more places. But to find our net zero future, we must overcome the natural constraints of many new energy sources. This is the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, where we look at the energy challenges of modern life and the innovators finding solutions. Join us for a low-carbon, high-energy conversation with your host, Joe Battier. This views of the host are his own and should not be viewed as those of any business, corporation, or government entity. Hello, and welcome to the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast brought to you by AWS Energy. I'm your host, Joe Batir. This is the show where we bring you low-carbon, high-energy stories from the people solving the energy challenges of modern life. I am here today with Carla Clay, Executive Director of Artist Boat. Based in Galveston, Texas, Artist Boat is a nonprofit organization with the mission to promote awareness and preservation of coastal margins. They do this through educational, immersive experiences in and around the Texas Gulf Coast, while also working towards the goal to restore and conserve a 1,400-acre tract of land from bay to beach. This is associated with the Coastal Heritage Preserve on West Galveston Island. So what does art, education, and coastal conservation have to do with energy and the energy transition? That is our goal today. We aim to answer those questions with Carla. So Carla, thank you for joining me on the show today. If you would please share with me and the audience your background and a quick introduction to Artist Boat. All right. Well, thank you, Joe, so much for uh, having me on your podcast. It's certainly exciting to know the world is interested in these topics. And uh, I hope I can help a little bit. I am from the Florida Keys. My father was a very famous uh, shark biologist, and so we grew up in uh, paradise, uh, snorkeling and fishing and wandering around mangroves and seagrass beds and coral environments. And uh, our neighbor was Flipper Sea School, so I also grew up with dolphins as neighbors. So frequently people ask me, how do you think of all these things or Why do you love the planet? And I just always have to reflect back on my childhood. And uh, most of my work is just a big, giant thank you for this miraculous planet we live on. And so uh, I have a degree in uh, visual arts and a degree in marine biology uh, from SMU and uh, Texas A&M University and started the Artist Boat 19 years ago to pursue Uh, helping people understand how the coast and marine environments work through science and art, because I believe very strongly that both of these disciplines create not only creative thinkers, but people with skills and knowledge that can be applied to make things better or applied to help people understand and to translate knowledge about our planet. So uh, I'm trying to think what else. Uh, Artist Boat uh, has many programs. I encourage people always to go to our website, but um, we primarily do uh, education with K through gray learners through uh, four different very big programs. And then we have been conserving land on West Galveston Island. 
uh, right now we have 890 acres, but for example, over 18,000 participants came through our experiential learning programs the year before COVID. Uh, they explored the bay by kayak. Uh, we do workshops in their classroom. We made very large public works about watersheds and uh, blue carbon, things like that on campuses, created native scapes to demonstrate resiliency, uh, uh, how to mitigate for flooding through the way we use land. So our programs are pretty extensive and uh, uh, we consider them uh, to be very well aligned to national and international standards for science literacy, environmental education, and arts experiences. Thank you for that introduction. It, it's safe to say that Artist Boat is covering a wide swath of how how to communicate the importance of of nature and the connection to nature. And I, I love that explanation of being able to take something like the creative mind and our creative juices and putting that into science and saying, how do you, how do you utilize or, or try to understand that natural world and then the natural creation and everything that's in it easily feeds off of how we can see and visualize and interpret it. So I, I love the the idea, the mission, and the the large scale picture of combining art with nature and using that to communicate science education. One question: Why Galveston? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I don't have a great answer though. I went to school at Texas A and M Galveston, and. Uh, you know, it is an island. It is on the Gulf of Mexico, although it is very different than the island I grew up on, which is on the Gulf of Mexico. Um, but I think I'm was raised that wherever you are is where you make a place better. So when I graduated, my first job was working on Galveston Bay, which is uh, one of the largest bays in North America. It's one of the eight largest bays in the U.S. And so it just really opened up a world to me about the estuary and the coastlines of Texas, which are very different than the coastlines of the Florida Keys, for sure. And then I met a lot of people, and I love community and I'm extroverted, so I love to know who everyone is. And uh, then I started the Artist Boat in Galveston because there were no environmental education programs serving <clears throat> any students in um, Galveston County or really Harris County to uh, the degree that um, is immersive and repetitive, meaning like no students at Galveston ISD were getting a program every year, like in sixth grade or seventh grade, that was a touchstone experience to the environment. So I just stayed. And then uh, when the land out here became, uh, uh, was sold uh, 1400 acres for a massive development, uh, we couldn't get anybody off the Island interested in helping with the conservation. And so artist boat started. So 
somehow I just chewed off a lot more than I ever imagined doing here and uh, never left and married my husband who also works here. We have a NOAA lab uh, here on the island. And so, um, you know, it really is a Marine community with Texas A&M, the NOAA lab, the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers has a, a facility here. The Coast Guard does. So I don't know. I just became a really uh, happy to be here. And uh, the place that we're saving uh, has to be saved. It's very significant uh, place and represents yep. our whole coastal heritage for the Houston Galveston region. So it's a, yep. a long answer. I apologize. <laughs> no, that sounds great. And and what I hear you saying is that it is a it's a unique location that has a lot of opportunities for for high end academic experiences and academic studies and research with the university and NOAA and the Army Corps of Engineers being there, while also not having those experiences available for for the education system from elementary school up through potentially even high school. And so it's a a spot that you've you've found this opportunity that maybe wasn't something you were searching for, but now is a a great opportunity to build this this conservation area that can now also be almost a living laboratory or a, a teaching location. You said it way better than I did. (laughs) Well, thank you. There are a few things that you touched on there that I want to ask and dig in a little bit deeper on. One of the ideas is conserving coastlines and your experience living along the coast for the majority of, of your life and the, the value of, of coastlines and their carbon sequestration and being a nature-based carbon sequestration solution. And you mentioned a term blue carbon. I'm not sure I've ever heard the term blue carbon. Can you, can you explain a little bit more what that is? Sure. Um, so blue carbon is the carbon stored in the ocean or waters um, because of wetlands. And um, so what happens is as the mangroves or salt marshes or seagrass beds, as the plants grow, they're sequestering carbon. They're taking it from the air. They're turning it into their plant bodies, their plant matter. And then as they grow, uh, they grow very fast and they also lose their leaves very fast. It falls to the bottom of the ocean or the bay, wherever it's growing. And then those dead parts get covered with soil and the carbon in the plant material gets stored in the soil So um, not all that's sequestered or captured winds up stored because the plant like us is, you know, emitting CO2 as it creates its energy from its food. But um, then that anaerobic sediment in the water, it's anaerobic because oxygen doesn't uh, dissolve as fast in 
water as air. So the soils are typically very anaerobic, meaning they don't have oxygen. So as the plant matter gets stuck and shoved under the soil, it will be stored there as long as that soil is never dredged up or, you know, dug up or something like that. So um, that blue carbon uh, stored in the sediments is three to five times more carbon per square foot than in a tropical forest. So it's substantial amount of carbon storage inside of the sediments underneath wetlands, which are mangroves, salt marshes, uh, could be intertidal higher marshes, but the, the process is the same. And it's the same in a freshwater wetland. It's just that our lakes and rivers, you know, don't have as expansive amounts of wetlands as the coastlines of the world's, you know, nations are tremendous. Um, and places like the Bahamas, they found the largest seagrass beds known on earth that, you know, it's millions of acres of uh, seagrass beds. So it's a very powerful process. I don't think the terminology is common, um, was commonly used until probably the last 10 years. Um, I think the scientists knew what was happening, but they didn't know how to tell the story as fast as like the forestry people told their story of carbon storage. That's very interesting. And I'm glad you, you started to bring that around to I, I guess this idea of why haven't we been hearing about this? And I think the idea of of blue carbon storing this in storing carbon in estuaries or wetlands in these coastal environments, I think a lot of the the technical minded folks in the oil and gas industry will recognize this. This is that almost that first step in the oil and gas maturation process, putting organic matter into the ground, storing it in an anaerobic environment, and then tens of millions of years later, if it goes through the burial process, may turn into hydrocarbons. So that's it's ironic that this is the process that can actually get us almost out of the, the ex, ex, extensive amount of CO2 that's being released to the atmosphere right now. The... Um, but I guess the the thing that you hear about most when it comes to talking about coastal environments associated with climate change, I hear about things like climate refugees, sinking islands, and all of the bad parts about rising sea levels. But you don't really hear about the blue carbon, how the coastlines can help us sequester carbon in a very fast fashion is what it sounds like and the the potential for these associated ecosystems to be to kind of be a saving grace if you will i guess on that to your point how and why are we not talking about this more well i think there are multiple multiple reasons that we have not talked about carbon in general and uh, climate change or uh, global warming. Uh, 
I mean, there were very real reasons why the knowledge was suppressed. Uh, the scientists were debunked. You know, there was a avid attempt to say this story is not true, that humans can't change the global average temperature on earth to a point where vertebrate life would not exist, right? Because we want to continue to use fossil fuels. Um, so that had, had, has to be overcome because this is science. It's not religion. It's not about beliefs. It's just facts. Then when you're fighting that I don't know if fighting is the right word, but I do feel like the environmental community and, you know, people might think that's a liberal community or a green hippie community. Like there's lots of negative language associated with being an environmentalist or an environmental activist or, you know, even a vegetarian possibly. But um, so first we have to be able to just talk in general about global climate change and that global warming is happening and, and what is it and that it's human induced, right? Cause you have to know there's a problem before you can talk about solutions. And if everybody's arguing like about that, there's not a problem, it's hard to move on to those conversations. And then I liken this, um, this story to um, like the Renaissance, all of a sudden humans changed the way they thought and were able to have an explosion of scientific knowledge, of art achievement visually and of literature. And we became globally accepting that uh, in the, during the Renaissance that, you know, science was something to pursue and to study. And you probably weren't going to get locked up anymore like Galileo did when he saw sunspots on the sun and the church said, hey, dude, that's not possible. The creation is perfect. And they imprisoned him because he said the sun had flaws on it, right? So you can't really talk about the earth not being flat until you can move on to maybe we rotate around the sun. So I feel like this century, um, the 20, uh, you know, the two thousands, we are transforming our minds because there's an explosion of, of research and knowledge about really the amazing interconnectedness of chemicals in the air literally the balance of that changes the temperature of our planet and that removing a thing from the bottom of the ocean, a fossil fuel or from shale or whatever, releasing that CO2, that carbon back into the environment changed it. And then there's so many people on the planet. Like it's a very big opportunity for humans to understand how a living planet works and, um, you know, I don't know if we can create another one, but to me, it's like when people figured out you could keep sharks alive and they could create the proper salt to put in the water, like it is a learning process. So I know that, you know, it's concerning what's happening, but I'm also very inspired by 
watching people learn and that now we can talk about blue carbon because the theory of climate science and global temperature change rising is a predominantly accepted theory of like when we all felt the world was not flat anymore. Hmm. I like that connection and the explanation there. And I, I completely relate thinking back to when I was in high school, when, when I took a natural science elective, which was, it was mostly geology, but then there was also weather and looking at clouds and trying to understand the tides and the moon with its waning and waxing, um, periods and all of these different aspects of of natural science but one thing that we never discussed was climate change and that wasn't that wasn't that long ago but in that time frame of the past 20 to 30 years and the amount of 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 knowledge that we're gaining exactly what you were saying the ability to understand what is happening in the climate and how the climate interacts with the ocean and interacts with the rocks and interacts with us seeing all of that is is now more possible than ever i think that that is a it is a very large very large process to understand if you look mm-hmm. at the carbon cycle as one aspect even though that is only one very small aspect of the entire ecosystem biosphere that is the natural earth world we live in. And I'd just like to hear your comments on that because I think this is where Artist Boat starts to bring in the idea of how do you actually communicate and, and describe something as large as and is ever-changing as the climate? Well, um, how we do it, you know, evolved, right? Because, I mean, I grew up with biologists, marine biologists in large abundance, and nobody spoke about climate science or climate change. I graduated from A&M Galveston with a marine biology degree, uh, Nobody talked about it really in any of our classes. Definitely it wasn't something we studied or immersed ourselves in. And then when we started Artist Boat, the focus really was, and still is, to provide a foundational experience in art and science. Primarily, uh, we focused on middle school through our eco-art workshop and adventure program by Kayak. And so in the classroom, we would teach about estuarine ecology, uh, non-point source pollution, the four functions of a wetland, which at the time were preventing erosion, filtering uh, and cleaning water. I mean, wetlands are a huge wastewater treatment plant for every piece of land. Anything running off it is being cleaned, hopefully, by a wetland. It's a nursery. 90% of all shrimps, fish, and crabs grow up or are born or require a wetland or an estuary to complete their life cycle. And this giant, a giant sponge. So during hurricane events, the massive quantities of wetlands soak up water 
So that water doesn't wind up in mainland areas or, you know, it's a great resiliency tool. We never added a fifth function, carbon storage or blue carbon, right? We didn't talk about that. And then for the art part, we did in the classroom, we taught them to paint a native species because kids cannot identify more than six common species in their backyard. Today, probably it's one maybe. Then they would come on the kayak adventure and they would learn about all this firsthand, you know, what is a wetland? What does it look like? And then we would do a plain air landscape painting. So the portrait and the plain air landscape painting, those are foundational art experiences that we should learn how, what, what makes a proper portrait, what makes a landscape painting. And there's lots of research that working through doing those things as humans, uh, helped us able to see and understand space. And uh, there's lots of theories as to when we could do that, how humans changed. So now we have this idea of climate, which is so abstract, very abstract. You can't see it. You can't taste it. Uh, We barely know how, I mean, we know about photosynthesis. We learned that in school, but we didn't, learn about what happens when there's too much carbon in the air. We just learned it's good for us to breathe oxygen and it's good for plants to get our CO2. Well, now we know we're emitting too much CO2. So then with our workshop and our adventure, we thought, well, we have to up our ante because we're not talking about climate science. And all of us as adult educators felt a little robbed that nobody taught us any of this. Um, So we decided to do what we call blue carbon art workshops. So after they do the first part, we come back in and we talk specifically about climate science, the different curves of global temperature rise. We talk about ocean acidification and that process where as the ocean absorbs too much carbon, the pH changes. And we talk about thermal expansion, which is as the ocean heats up, part of sea level rise People think it's coming from the ice caps or things melting, but also as the ocean heats up, the water molecules get farther apart from each other. So thermal expansion is also causing sea level rise. I mean, that is super abstract. Ocean acidification is abstract. Blue carbon is abstract. CO2 is abstract. So then we added the third piece of art. They have to create a conceptual piece of art that translates knowledge about climate science. So they can use data or curves and they can use species, whatever the students think of, they can add, make a composition. And then of course, what was invented in the 20th century by artists was conceptual art um, because we didn't need to paint portraits or landscapes anymore. We have the camera or we learned about atomic energy or things like that. So artists started working more abstractly because they want to not just paint a picture of what we see, they want to tell a story that can help people understand, you know, something about how the world works or emotions work, things like that. So we added that third piece. And, you know, now we have marine debris art contests and we have a lot more programs that, you know, bring the art out of this traditional kind of, space of portraiture and landscape painting, things like that. But um, the, the blue carbon art is very inspiring because the students 
put together things that, you know, I never imagined with my art degree. And then there are more artists working doing blue carbon art that um, you can look up. And uh, uh, there are many amazing artists working now in this uh, global climate uh, space to help people understand and making art specifically about climate change and ecosystems and people and resiliency. And uh, that'd be a whole nother, like probably could be a college course now about this intersection of art and science specifically with uh, climate science. Wow. So I think that's all amazing to think about having that, the understanding of the art and understanding what the science means and then translating it and not only translating that into something that you can see and touch and feel and but also express and so to me there's there's a few different steps here right and this is more the education the understanding the equipping to know what what exactly you're trying to communicate and that is kind of what is going on right now in the climate and and where the where the coastlines are in that that space but then you're also working on this aspect of restoring and conserving wetlands and you have almost 900 acres now on West Galveston Island where did that come into the the I guess, where did that become part of everything that Artist Boat is doing? How did you go from purely the the education and the experience into the action, that being the conservation and and re- restoration? Um, well, we... The land that we're purchasing was purchased by a developer and was platted for thousands of different kinds of units and for channelization of the wetlands and the prairie, which means that they would be dug up so that people can live on bulkheaded canals and the what they dig up would be underneath people's houses to elevate their property. It's just a horrible practice. Uh, to develop wetlands and um, to channelize and dig up a prairie is also a very bad practice because it's the most endangered habitat in North America. But we tried to get other organizations that do land acquisition involved and they didn't want to work on Galveston Island because it's very developed and we don't have a governmental investment in conversation conservation at the county or the city level. So we just started uh, working on conservation grants because we knew the, the land was very high in biodiversity. It's on a barrier island. There was enough of it to matter, right? We're not talking about us. 1,400 acres on a barrier island is a ton of land and wetlands. And so we started working and got conservation grants and kept going. But I think the fact that... Um, our, our project will save two and a half miles, maybe more, of living shorelines from channelization. Uh, 
was powerful to the uh, people awarding grants because uh, it also makes the island more resilient, right? Because there's the, the island's functioning as it's supposed to. It decreases the cost to the taxpayer because we won't ever have to pay for those homes to be rebuilt. And then, uh, you know, gave us an opportunity to start having deeper conversations about blue carbon and all land saved stores carbon, prairie store carbon, you know, forest, everything. So, you know, we didn't mean to get in the land conservation business, but it is part of our mission to promote awareness and preservation of the coast through science and art. And uh, what I really like about it is that now when you teach environmental education, it's really low level just to inform you about a process and, and ask you to not litter or something like that. Now the environmental education continuum include stewardship actions that are direct and improve environmental quality. So I really feel like now Artist Boat is a very good model of what we're teaching because we go through the environmental education continuum as an organization. We are learning, we are making decisions, we're taking actions that improve the environmental quality of Galveston Bay and the island, and then uh, we're sustaining that action. So um, I don't think anything we are doing is original, by the way. I think it's just parallels what is happening across what I would call an environmental education or a nature-based kind of industry of work. Um, we may be nonprofit, but, uh, you know, we've done 14 transactions and saved 898 acres and brought, you know, $17.5 million in conservation dollars to our community, uh, which is powerful. Yep. Yeah, that is definitely powerful. And I think that's, that's very cool to think about the, the way that artist boat is going through that process of that education continuum and going into the action and, and you yourselves are that representation of of what do you do with the knowledge once you have it you act on it and are able to start making a positive impact i am curious with with your your experience you've lived on the coast basically your entire life you've been in this role in Galveston nearly 20 years now how have you seen the com the conversation change as far as as climate change as far as the the impact to coastlines as far as the role of coastlines in the climate change conversation and the similar to that I guess the education continuum how have you seen that? conversation continuum evolve or change? Ooh, that's a complicated question. Like, I mean, I didn't grow up where anybody talked about climate change or sea level rise. I mean, we did talk about what we now use the word resiliency for. Um, but I don't think we ever imagined 
that the coast would disappear or that the Florida Keys might be underwater or Miami or Galveston Island. Um, and the conversation I don't think is a good one for coasts or islands throughout the world. Um, you know, sea level is rising and I don't think people really understand that the heart of the heartbeat of our, of our planet is where the land meets the seas. And that is where people want to vacation. That is where we get an amazing amount of food from. That is where we have the literal lungs of our ocean uh, are at that edge where, you know, estuaries have nurseries. I mean, I don't even know how to answer this question. I'm just trying to think like <laughs> right now, I think the conversation is not good because people in general don't value island communities or coastlines unless they're on vacation. I don't think they realize like that San Francisco is on an estuary. Houston is on an estuary. New York city is on an estuary. Um, Seattle is on an estuary all over the world where you have big cities. Uh, most of them are associated with an estuarine environment and a bay because it offers transportation for commerce. In the case of Houston, the bay offers a, a lot of cooling abilities for all these industrial processes. And then these places are also the living shorelines with wetlands that sequester as much carbon or more as like the redwood forest at the Muir Woods or the Amazonian um, tropical forest or the tropical forest of Indonesia. I'm not saying we don't save those places too. That's very important. Indonesia are islands, but it really greatly disturbs me that people just talk about people on the coast will be climate refugees. They need to move away. We shouldn't have to pay for them going underwater because they chose to li live there. We never imagined going underwater and we don't live here to cost the nation money. We live here so the nation can flourish. Like, Houston makes the nation flourish um, through oil and gas, through commerce of shipping, all kinds of things. And, um, you know, I think that the whole world should be desperate to stave off climate change, store carbon in blue carbon environments at the very minimum so they can still go on vacation and get wet and have the wind in their face and sand on their feet. But for a much bigger reason, that probably 50% of all people on the planet live in estuaries and the people living farther inland probably don't want us as neighbors anyway. <laughs> right. They want to live where they want to live. Like we don't ask people to move away where there are forest fires or tornadoes or earthquakes. So, um, but I think by saving the coast and storing carbon, we can save the planet. We can also save the planet from mass extinctions also, if we really want to stave off climate, we're going to figure out how to sequester carbon and store it at a really, I'm sure, tremendous level. I don't know how many billions of, of tons of carbon we need to pull out of the system. 
but I think humans could do it if they chose to. We just have to work on different things than we're used to working on. Maybe we work less on sports or less on fashion. I don't know what it is. I don't know where the creative energy is going that needs to go this way, but I think it has to change. Yep. I I really like that that conversation there and what you're saying as far as the the coastlines being the lungs of of the ocean, the lungs of of the earth and really those that are living on the coastlines y'all are the front lines of of climate change because you are there either keeping the the estuaries or the wetlands in in shape and keeping them in a healthy manner and restoring and conserving those and and i think whenever there's conversations around around hurricane season there's always conversations similar to what you said earlier that where you have those natural mangrove forests or where you have the the natural vegetation you ultimately have a smaller storm surge and that natural vegetation is is a safety buffer for for that specific case but as you've laid out here it is it is a safety buffer for for the well-being of the entire planet and so really instead of instead of telling people or or somehow putting the the burden on those living by the coast it, it really should be celebration of coastlines and of concert conserving those because because everybody likes to go to the beach everybody enjoys enjoys fresh seafood and of course maybe not everybody but i enjoy the beach i enjoy fresh seafood and it's definitely a a living vibrant area whenever you get to go be seaside so not to end on this this somber note of 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 making these almost war type comparisons um what are some exciting things that Artist Boat has planned coming up in the near future? Well, we are very excited. We have a two-year option to purchase 148 acres that is between uh, two big sections of bay property that we own. And it's in the middle of the property we own. And it's slated for development of 52 very large channelized homes. And the developer has given us a two-year option to save that and they would forego development. Uh, it is a very big purchase price of six and a half million dollars, but we've already been awarded $1.1 million. And we have a B1 in a million campaign. We're trying to get 1 million people to donate $10 so that we have $10 million to leverage federal and state conservation grants, because every time we get a federal or state conservation grant, it comes with matching fund obligations from one to one dollar. We have to chip in 30 cents or one to one and the land is expensive, but we're very excited about this option. And then as far as work coming up, we have a, a new uh, NOAA Bay and Watershed Education Training Grant which is based on the, this model of meaningful watershed experiences. 
and we're building a systemic model with one of the middle schools here that will be uh, uh, 27 lesson plans and uh, they'll all be integrated to different uh, ocean trust resources from fisheries to uh, studying climate to atmosphere, weather. And then uh, the students will design their own field experiences with uh, their own burning question about the ocean. And then they'll go on these field experiences that they have designed to answer their question. And then they will also have their own stewardship action project, collect data, and then have a conference to share what they learn through their stewardship action project. And um, people keep asking, what is this going to look like? Well, we're building the model now, but maybe students will want to go to a landfill for their field experience. And maybe their question will be, you know, how do I get my family to quit wasting food because that contributes to our carbon footprint. So, you know, we hope their actions are simple enough for them to do, but meaningful enough for them to learn about the connections of the environment. And then um, this weekend and next weekend, we have our annual fundraiser, a dinner series under the stars out on the prairie under a big tent. And uh, we have a live plain air painter and, uh, we have an online auction, which people can get to from our website. Just go to Float the Boat. And uh, the online auction has great, great art, great experiences. You could win uh, the bid and have a home right on the tippity tip of Galveston Bay with nothing in your way or view. You can just walk out and wade fish or watch a great sunset. So, uh we have a lot always planned, but I'm really excited about those three things. Very cool. And that's very exciting stuff. We'll include a link in the show notes to those. And hopefully by this time this show releases, there'll still be time to participate in some of those things. Now, I want oh, to... Yes, I think you're right. Float the Boat will be over before this is public. But people could still be one in a million and uh, sign up for our newsletter for next year. Great. And then next year you can participate and float the boat. So yes. <laughs> with that, <laughs> with that, I want to transition into the final questions. These are the questions I ask all of my guests that are a little bit maybe off topic and a little bit more fun. The first question is, what is a favorite book of yours that you would recommend? Oh my gosh, Joe, I have so many favorite <laughs> books. My most famous, I mean, my most favorite reads of late are Naming Nature, about the way we as humans uh, and children start to name nature, how, to, how we learn. And then The Overstory, which is about forests, but it's fiction. That, that book blew my mind. And then most recently, I read a simple book about the scientists who studied the atmosphere and discovered the different layers, which is called An Ocean of Air. All right. Those all sound exciting. And particularly the overstory that um, I'm always looking for good fiction books that are also sciencey, but not not really science fiction, if that makes sense. Yes. So that sounds interesting. The it next is question. Great. The next question is, when will we be net zero as a society? 
Well, I hope it's whenever the intergovernmental panel for the UN tells us we're supposed to be there, because I think it has to happen like in the next probably 10 years. Yes, it is. It is fast approaching and always seems to seems to be getting, I guess, closer since it's fast approaching. Yes, we just keep kicking that can down the road. Yes, and hopefully we won't kick it down the road forever because ultimately (laughs) if we keep kicking it, then something's going to break. But the, the next question I have, now you actually get to ask me a question. You know, Joe, I, I, we should disclose that I know you because of long, long, long time uh, friend. And uh, I feel part of the Gatewood family, which you are married to a Gatewood. And I know that uh, uh, belief in God and faith is uh, very near and dear and important. And I just would like you to maybe share why or how um, your belief in God is not debased by your acceptance of the theory of climate change. That is a that's a good question or a a request here, if you will. So I think <laughs> you don't have to answer if you don't want to. <laughs> no, I think that's a that's a great question and something that that. I think is probably something many people wrestle with when it comes to uh, when it comes to climate change itself. It is based on data and we see in the data that the climate is warming and whether you want to get into the debate of whether that is human induced or whether that's a natural cycle, that is a I would say that is a a separate issue that I would gladly talk to anybody about but focusing in on the on the key facts here that the the earth is warming and as a as a believer in Christ and using the the Bible as that kind of manual and focus on what we're supposed to do it it has in there that we are supposed to take care of the earth as part of God's creation. We are stewards of the earth and of all of God's creation. And we should be stewarding that to the best of our abilities. Now, I would say stewarding that to the best of our abilities requires us to not be thinking of ourselves, but be thinking of others. And how can we make life better for others. And I think that's where you can start start getting into the nuances of other other people would say that the key component of making life better for others is producing as much energy as possible. And the quickest and fastest way to do that is through oil and gas. And I I agree that energy is required to have a good life. I don't know, and I think this is where you start getting into the nuance, is how do you produce the most amount of energy possible while also making sure that 
everything else is also in unison. I think that's where being a a good steward of the land, of spending time conserving and restoring any type of natural settings and not developing areas that don't need to be developed, those are the ways that we can kind of have that tension and hopefully that balance of the tension of having an abundant energy-filled life that gives us opportunity to have modern healthcare and the ability to control our our own internal climate, that being heating and cooling, while also storing carbon and giving the natural world the ability to continue going because ultimately if 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 the world ends up stopping then then that's that's it and i think getting to a a deeper point on the religious aspect if we if the world stops then there's no more evangelism we can't we can't evangelize to to dead people so we can't go in and and post mortem baptize people into a relationship with Christ. So I may not be able to reach every single person on the earth, but if I am doing my best to not have an impact on the earth and to give the earth and society an opportunity to to live longer, if you will, then that would mean more people have the opportunity to meet Christ or to meet somebody who knows Christ and then to hear the gospel. So I think that is that would be my take on it and how and why Christians and religious people should be taking care of the earth in in the same way that you take care of your family or you see that that thing that you care about and want to foster and create and and have for for your time on the earth. I don't know if that really does a good job of answering the question, but I I hope it is at least coherent, if if not a little bit rambling. <laughs> well, I appreciate your honesty and it's probably not something you typically share on your podcast. Um that is, I think those things are things people think about. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely something something people think about. And as you think about like what is what is the reason to to conserve something like Galveston? For me, I've been to Galveston twice in my life. But so for me, the question of why why preserve Galveston, if I may go there one or two more times during my life, or think of something like Vienna in, I think Vienna's in Italy, right? Oh man. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you think about Vienna that is slowly sinking into the ocean and I may never go to Vienna, but why, why care about climate change for the people of Vienna. I think those are the kind of very big lofty ideas that that people need to think about when you're also thinking about why should I care about 
something like climate change? Or why should I care about something like energy? As long as I have energy, which nowadays is, isn't necessarily all the time being in Texas, but as a, as a question of why do I like energy and how can we provide that to others? But how can we also provide safe, reliable, resilient opportunities to others? So wrapping everything up, I, I do want to point out to everybody now as we are getting into the holiday season, towards the end of the year, you may have opportunities for, for volunteering as an organization or as individuals. You may have opportunities for, for year-end giving and we heard earlier from Carla on the on the artist boat opportunity to purchase some land to conserve it. I would just encourage everybody go check out artist boat, check out some of the opportunities they have and see if there's a way that you could either look for a a giving opportunity or a volunteering or potentially doing one of these these immersive art educational experiences. That's the last thing I want to say. Carla, thank you for joining me on the show today. Before we sign off, is there anything that you would like to say? Well, I wish everybody a joyful holiday season. And as you go through your holiday season, just think about how you can conserve energy, water, soil, air through your actions. And sometimes there's great joy in using less. I agree. Find the joy in using less. So Carla, thank you again for joining me. And thank you everyone for joining us on this episode of the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast. If you're enjoying this show, share it with a friend and leave a review telling me what you're enjoying most or what you would like to hear more of. If you want to hear more news and energy related stories, we have all sorts of great energy related podcasts on OGGN. You can find those by connecting with us on LinkedIn or visiting OGGN.com. One more thing, I have a quick favor to ask. I have a one-question survey that I want you to fill out. The link is in the show notes. If you go and fill that out, we can send you some stickers. And finally, if you have any questions, comments, corrections, or have a story that you would like to share, send me an email or find me on LinkedIn. And until next time, remember to keep it low carbon and high energy. Join us again next week for another low-carbon, high-energy story on the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.